Hello, lovely people. How are you? Oh, I've missed you and I am so excited to be back with you for Series 8. Now, before we get going, I have a little favour to ask. Would you possibly mind rating and reviewing this podcast and ideally subscribing to it too? The reason I ask this is the more we do this, the more people we can help with their next chapters. And this is what we're trying to do because frankly, well, next chapters can really be amazing. So, Speaking of next chapters and amazing, Farah Storr has not only been the editor of Elle magazine, she's also been the editor of Cosmopolitan, as well as starting Women's Health magazine too. She was listed as one of the 1,000 most powerful people in the UK in 2017. Plus, she's won numerous awards, including Editor of the Year. And now she's changing the way we consume our media. She's doing something she loves and helping others to do the same. Farah has also written a book called The Discomfort Zone, How to Get What You Want by Living Fearlessly. It's all about the obstacles we face and how, rather than skirting around them, actually working through them is the most exciting and magical route you can ever take. Farah tells us what life is really like at those Paris fashion weeks. She also talks about the importance of being ourselves and how it's this which gives us the lives we're really meant to have. Farah is warm, modest and so encouraging. I cannot think of a better way to begin. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Farah Storr. Farah Storr, I am so excited to welcome you to The Next Chapter. Thank you so much for saying yes to doing this. Very welcome. Nice to be here. Ah. It's an, I mean, it's an honour. So let's just, we've got so much to talk about. So let's just get started. So as ever, we start with the prologue. Now, I understand you grew up in Manchester and you were the third of four children. Um, And how I heard you describe yourself before is that you were an intense introvert, but you also, you had this great love of running at at quite a young age. Yeah, I, I think when you're, so I suppose just for some context, so I was the middle child of four, but I had um, I had quite a strict Pakistani father. And I say this with great affection and love, but my dad was sort of quite typically Asian in, in the sense that when I was growing up, you know, the eldest was sort of the goddess, which was my sister. The eldest sort of has this, this sort of real power. And my father really looked to the eldest. And then the second person was the eldest boy and sort of boys have, you know, pretty big significance. And then the youngest in our family was also a boy. So I was in this weird sort of place where I was the middle child, but I was also a girl. So the middle girl. And I think one of the things, despite the fact I was a, a sort of a, an intense introvert, was I was sort of a bit of a, a contradiction, really, because I was an intense introvert, but at the same time, was I was incredibly, incredibly um, ambitious. And I think it came from the fact that I was just always trying to stand out amongst my siblings. Um, and so where the running comes in, I suppose, I think the running was just, I found a place where, um, you know, if you worked hard and you were dedicated, 
um, you could be the best. And being the best was very important to me when I was growing up because it was a way of standing out in a family where I felt very forgotten, which, by the way, is not any judgment on my parents who are incredibly loving. Uh, and I don't even think my dad realises. I mean, I do say to him now, you know, you do realise being the middle girl was very difficult and he sort of chuckles, but they were very loving. But I think it was something that I internalised myself. And, and so it manifested in, in being very driven and very ambitious. And of course, you know, sports for kids, if you are that way inclined, are, are a really good way to push yourself. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? We do. I mean, I'm the third. I'm the youngest of two older brothers. And I totally understand what you're saying there and and it's is it's it and we'll go on to talk about this but isn't it we become our own worst enemy sometimes because we tell ourselves these stories and actually it's like you say your mum and dad it wasn't necessarily true but then it, it goes on to almost define sort of then how you were as a child it's 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 quite interesting isn't it yeah I think that's right I think it's very easy to blame your parents and also if you if you blame your parents sort of so what I mean you're not going to change anything I definitely don't blame my parents I think my dad was the way he was I don't think he realized he did it a lot of the time and and he he didn't love me any less I mean my dad is a very demonstrative very loving father um, but yes you internalize what you perceive to be or I perceive to be an order of things and I perceived wrongly absolutely wrongly that somehow being the middle girl in some way I had sort of a diminished status within the family pack which I don't think is true but but you're right you come up with this narrative of of what that means and and therefore you know rightly or wrongly you live your your, you live your life a certain way because of that and and actually the truth is Ella you know this is not a woe it's me Mm. it served me really well actually Yeah, it really has. Because, I mean, we said just before we started recording, I've um, just been listening on, on your audio book, the, uh, the Discomfort Zone, the book that you wrote. Um, so I've, I've been listening. I've had your voice in my, in my ears as I've been running myself, Farah. So, and, it, and it's, just, it's just brilliant. And it, it just really is. So, and you talk about this in the book that there you were at sort of 11 years of age. I think you were like ca- at county championship level. You were doing 100 metres. You were doing really well. But the problem came... Because you, because when you were competing, this is where you, you know you were going to be. You're going to be an Olympic runner. But when it actually came down to it, and then you were running, and somebody was behind you and catching you up, then it then it all went a bit wrong, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. I I was a terrible finisher. I've always been like that, brilliant out the starting blocks. Um, but but if I feel somebody is on my tail, yeah, I just sort of sort of gave up. Um, I don't know where that comes from. I think there was the, there was always a I always like to be ahead of ahead of the pack by quite some distance. And again, I couldn't tell you. I mean, I've never had therapy. I'd love to know what they would think. I don't know where that came from. But yeah, with running, that's what happened in the end. You know, I was very good. Uh, I was a star runner for a very long time. And then the moment it felt literally and metaphorically, I suppose, that there was somebody on my tail, I just sort of gave up. And, and it probably, you know, now I think about it, when I look back at my career, it's probably true of how how I've lived my career which is you know I've never stayed at anything for very long I've sort of got to the top and then I've moved on very quickly and I think I I think I've always done that and I did that with running you know the minute that I felt that I was no longer the best by a sort of clear distance um I just sort of gave up and actually running from memory I sort of shelved very quickly I'm very good at moving on 
Um, but yeah, I just moved on. I don't know what I moved on. I think I moved on to being incredibly academic after that. You know, the the academia replaced the running. So the ambition just sort of moved in, in a different direction. But do you think, I'm, again, we're talking about this and I'm no, I mean, this is me using very amateur psychology and I, I'm definitely not a psychologist, but do you think there's a difference? Though? There's a difference between that where where someone's sort of coming up and I understand that, um, you know, you think someone's going to take over and then you think, oh, you know, I just give up. What's the point? But then there's also a difference between actually you just want to keep growing. And when we come on to talk about what you have done, you've done so many different amazing things, but obviously you're somebody that... Talk, you know you wrote a book called the discomfort zone you know it's you can stay comfortable in that one place and that's but that's two different things isn't it that's not giving up because someone you feel like you're not so good it's more that you just want to keep growing and and improving and, and learning new things yeah I think I think that's probably right it, it's less about the person behind you it's more about yourself which is you feel now is the time to move on because actually I mean that's the point isn't it if somebody is catching up with you probably what that means is it's time for you to keep growing and, and it's time for you to move on to something new you know that's what I always did as an editor I was never when I was coming through editors tended to stay in their positions for sort of 10 15 sometimes 20 years I never wanted to stay more than three or four years in any editorship one because obviously you know um you have to open up the opportunities of which there are virtually none in the magazine industry, but mainly selfishly, which is, you know, after three or four years, if you are performing to the very best of your ability, certainly in magazines anyway, you've sort of after about four years, it's time to move on to something else. I've never been good at sort of just sitting and resting with, okay, I've now achieved this. This is what success looks like. Um, what do they say? It's something like once you get to the top of the mountain, it's time to start at the bottom again of something completely new. And that's definitely, I think, where I get my energy from is sort of starting all over again. Yeah. OK, well, I say we'll come on to that. But so so staying there still just in your prologue. So you then, like you say, you really um, threw yourself into academia and you really wanted to go to Oxford, didn't you? You had your sights set that you wanted to go to Oxford and you kind of worked all the way up to, towards this and then you went for your interview and then you had this real sense hang on this isn't going to happen yes well it didn't happen um and <laughs> I, I still smart when I when I think about it but <laughs> you know, you, you're absolutely right um and, and actually you know the Oxford thing I was thinking about recently you know again that was another thing which was something that I thought that my my father wanted you know it would have been this ultimate status symbol to to sort of the world if he had a child who went to Oxbridge. Um, and of course, it was what I thought I wanted as well. So yeah, so after the running, I spent, you know, most of my, um, the sort of bright burning light at the end of the tunnel for me was I had to get into Oxford, that that was what I set my sights on. And it didn't happen. And it was absolutely crushing. I mean, you know, I know that seems sort of ridiculous now, but at 17, when it's all you've wanted for sort of five years of your life, it was it was absolutely crushing. Mm. Um, but of course, what it did was it opened up a new avenue for me. Um, and I and I still to this day think that perhaps had I gone to Oxford, I'm not sure that I would have been in the position that I'm in now. Because, of course, not getting into Oxford meant that I had to find another way, which was I ended up in London. And of course, being in London opened up a sort of whole new career for me. You know, I, I would never have been a journalist, I think, if I hadn't got to London 
18 years of age. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I completely understand because my husband, he had an interview for Cambridge. And to be honest with you, Farah, it still gets him. It still gets him to this day. That he, and he's like, I should have gone back. I should have gone to another college. I should have tried something. But, you know, again, I I say the same to him that like what you've just said, it, sometimes these things, it just he went to Leeds. He had an amazing time. And, and you know, he, he's where exactly where he should be now. So you can't always, it's very easy to keep going back. But actually, sometimes these things, I know it's easy to say, but it really is meant to be. But I think, and, and it's interesting, I know lots of people like your husband who they still think about it. And I guess it's because at 17, you know, all you want to do, all you want to be is part of the pack, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you always want, you're always sort of, a, we are tribal creatures. And at 17, I think it was the first time a place which you had seen as highly aspirational basically is saying you are you are not right you're not the right fit for here so i think that's why it it's it sort of burns within all of mm. us this it's like it's that rejection at that point in your life yeah. um is very difficult so yes and we all chuckle about it all the oxford rejects but <laughs> i think that's where it comes from yeah especially when you've got schools behind you and people saying that you can do this and then you go outside and then someone says no it's that first step into the outside world isn't it and someone says no that is it's tough it's really tough yes I think I think that's absolutely right and of course the other thing that Oxford teaches you and maybe this is me being bitter it could well be (laughs) but life really isn't equal you know I had the best grades that you could possibly imagine but I still didn't get in so suddenly I sort of realized it was like this awakening to the world which is there are lots of reasons why you might not get something and it's not always about being the best person for the job there might be other things you might not be the right type of person or you might they might be looking for something different and I think suddenly you know that's again perhaps why it feels sort of you know um, you remember it so well and so vividly is that that is sort of life. You cannot control things. You can't say, I'm going to get straight A's and therefore I will get into Oxford. Life is a combination of all these things of which most of it is outside of your control. Mm -hmm. And so when you realise that at 17 years old, it's very hard to take. But of course, it's a wonderful lesson for sort of moving forward with your life. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what you did. So like you say, you went to King's College in London. Now, at this stage, did you know you wanted to be a journalist? Had you thought that you wanted to be a journalist at all? I knew that I wanted to work in magazines. I didn't really understand what a journalist was, if I'm completely honest. Um, I loved magazines. I grew up with them. You know, I religiously read just 17 and Smash It's. And actually, it was only my sister. So I have an elder sister who's 10 years older than me. She actually sort of did the dutiful thing that all immigrant parents want their kids to do, which is she went and became a lawyer and was absolutely miserable. And then she won a competition in a magazine. Um, I think she she had to write something and she won a, I think she won like a date with two male models. I don't know why there were two, um, but she won a date with two male models. And as a consequence of that, she started doing work experience at magazines and and she sort of came back to the fold and said you know there is this whole other world far out there and there are people with jobs in the creative industries and you just have to get yourself to London if you want to be part of it so I had a sense very early on that I want I, I loved this this world of magazines really excited me and gave me a lot of energy but it was only when my sister moved down and sort of could explain what these jobs look like 
that's when it sort of became a reality. And that's why, of course, I moved down to London and I chose a London university because the truth of the matter was she was like, you have to be in London and there's going to be an element of doing this free work. And, you know, the smart thing to do, which, of course, it was the smart thing for me was, you know, I figured out, well, you have so much downtime at university. I'll just do work experience and I'll try and write for magazines whilst I'm studying, which, of course, is what happened in the end. Yeah, that's incredible. That's amazing that your sister did that, you know, to go from being a lawyer there. Because, I, again, I've heard you talk about, and we are sort of going to move on, but just stay, just staying there at, at the beginning, because I've heard you talk about this, that your dad, well, you say he ran a local greengrocer, but your mum corrected you and said, actually, it really was a delicatessen. But, you know, that's that's where, that was your, I love, I love that. I'm sure it's very fancy. Yes, he was very happy about that. They did sell fruit and vegetables. And he then, you know, to be fair to him, that's how he started. He then did go on and, he, he you know, he, he was a property developer in the end. So he did really well. But yes, he wasn't very happy about me saying it was a greengrocer's. Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure it's very nice greengrocer or delicacy, whatever it was. But, but that, you know, that obviously you both, but that was, a, I mean, that was a brave thing to do to go from being a lawyer. Um, and obviously that must have helped you as well to see that you didn't have to go down that route of being a lawyer or, or a doctor is, is often the case. But then also the work ethic to know that actually you do have to work for free because I know being a journalist myself, it's quite hard to, for anyone to get your head around that at the beginning, that people will say, but why are you going to work for free? You know, you, you've got a great university degree, but you understood that this is what you had to do to get into this industry. Yes. And it did seem like madness. I mean, I have to say, I didn't sort of accept it. I did think it was madness. I'd never heard of people working for free. And of course, once you got into those places, you saw that there were people who had been working for free for years. Mm. I mean, those fashion covers, you had people in there who'd been living in there for years. Um, I mean, of course, now it's all been outlawed as it should be. But it was a shock to the system. And I don't think it's right. And of course, it does mean that not everybody can work in magazines unless you're, you know, unless you're smart. Like, you know, I tried to be as canny as I could be. But yeah, it, it was, you know, why on earth would anybody work for free? Mm. And of course, you know, the rationale is, but I don't think this is the right rationale is, well, everybody wants a job on, on magazines and, yeah. and therefore there is a scarcity. And therefore what that breeds is, you know, pretty hot. It can do. I don't think it does anymore, but it can breed quite a hostile environment because you have these people who they're all desperate for the same job and people hang on to those jobs for a very long time. So it, it, it's an amazing industry, the Dossie magazine industry. Incredible. I would never have it any other way, but it's also quite mercenary as well. Mm, I totally, I mean, the TV industry, we could talk about this and go off on a tangent and we won't, but I mean, it's, it was exactly the same. And I think it still is in some in some areas, but say that's a different matter. So again, I totally understand. So I I understood that. So was one of your first jobs was basically like a door to door salesman, even though you thought it was marketing. Have I, have I got that right for you? Was that but like you're one of your first sort of steps into this area? <laughs> well, I, I, I. When I, oh, I don't know how old I was. Yes, I, I basically, there was some there was some drink called kombucha, which is very fashionable now. But this was sort of 20 odd years ago. And I had to try and sell kombucha to bars. And yeah, I would just sort of turn up with my suitcase and open it up and try and sell this, you know, fermented drink, which basically sounded like a moldy drink to people. Um, I absolutely hated it. I've never been so miserable in my life. But again, it was it was amazing, you know, because it was it was a lesson in uh, 
rejection after rejection and you know always be nice to salespeople because it's a really hard job Mm, that was so I mean again it's all it's sort of all of this what you were going through it's all building up to where you where you went to because then I think was it your first you were 23 and your first job was it woman and home magazine and you yes, were you were in ad you were doing admin but you were also interviewing women as well so it was like a quite a, it was a junior role but it was that, that first step and and you were told by your boss then and and this is what you talk about in your book and I, again I find it extremely helpful I mean it's quite a traumatic thing to ha- happen that you were told basically Farah you, you're just not you're not good enough <laughs> yes well I wasn't good enough I mean they're absolutely right I mean I I sort of got this job, which, of course, I didn't realise at the time. I'd probably beaten out about 70 young women um, because these jobs never came up. And I was just a bit, I think I think the thing at Woman and Home was, you know, I was surrounded by, they were much older women, so they'd all lived a little bit. They'd all gone through the ropes. And I just thought it was enough to just work really, really hard at the things I loved, which was writing. But, of course, the job was getting invoices paid. The job was doing all the admin and I was absolutely terrible at that. I, I mean, I still am. I'm absolutely hopeless with administration. Um, and so lot, So I remember I went away on a holiday, I think, and I just left, you know, like case studies, people that were coming to be shot for, um, not literally shot, obviously, who were going to be photographed. And I hadn't booked their train tickets. And so they hadn't. I mean, it was just carnage. And so when I got back, quite rightly, my big boss took me aside and said, look, you know, we're going to give it three weeks and, and, and see how it goes. And it was devastating. I mean, it was like, you know, after the Oxford rejection, it was like the worst thing. It was worse because I had these three weeks where basically I was being judged. Like, is she good enough? Is she going to stay? Um, but my God, it, it, it kicked my ass into gear. I mean, it, it was, it was revel. It was, it was a sort of revelatory, I think, in that actually being told perhaps what you don't want to hear can sometimes be the best thing for you. So, you know, I didn't like them very much at the time. And, you know, I think I left about a year later, but in retrospect, they were absolutely right, right to do that. And what, what do you think? Because, you know, this is all part of the next chapter thing, isn't it? If I'm which, um, you know, it's that horrible thing when you go into something, you know, this is what I want to do. I really want to do it. And you make that and you've got that job and you beat those, you know, 70 others and you're you're there. And then but then this is where it gets sort of tougher because it's like, actually, do you know what? You, yeah, you know, I'm not good enough to do this. So what lots of people do is they say, oh, well, you know, it's not for me. And she's a she's a miserable woman, you know, what does she know sort of thing? And we're just and I'm just going to give up or I'll try something new and we go on. But you didn't. You stuck with it. And you like you say, it taught you a lot. So what did you at that stage at 23? What did you learn about yourself rather than go down that route of sort of blaming everyone else? How did you learn what was wrong with you and what did you do to change? Well, I think, I mean, don't get me wrong, I was very angry with her at the beginning. I thought she was just, you know, a miserable old cow and, and, and how dare she. But, but of course, you realise quite quickly, you know, if you want to keep your job, you have got to change and you've got to fit into the system around you. The system doesn't fit around you. And of course, obviously, she was not a silly old cow. She was a, a smart woman um, and she knew what was good for me. But but I think what what it taught me was... The idea that, you know, you can't always control situations. And if something is being asked of you, then, then, then you know, these are the rules and you've entered into this strange new world. But actually, 
you know, this whole idea of, well, this is me, take take me or leave me. Um, you know, that that's not the reality of, of situations. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it taught me, I mean, God, it, it taught me so much. I think the other thing that it taught me actually was um, the idea that, you know, hearing things which are quite uncomfortable actually can be the best thing for you. And I think what she introduced me to the idea was, you know, basically all she was saying was, you know, you're not very good at this one. You're not very good at this thing, but actually this thing is very important for the job you have been employed to do. And so what she was doing was she was putting an obstacle in front of me. She was basically saying there's a red flag here and you need to address it. And what it made me realize was, yeah, I, I couldn't. And actually, I wasn't in a situation to flounce out and leave. I it just I just couldn't afford to do that. And so what I had to do is I had to work through the obstacle in front of me, which was I was crap at, you know, 50 percent of the job. Um, and through working through that, I suppose what I uncovered was I sort of unlocked who I really was. And I guess I've been quite good, good as I hope I've been good as a leader but also as an individual at now understanding that actually obstacles are this amazing opportunity to figure out sort of what reserves you've got, who you really are, but also to figure out quite quickly what your strengths are and, and what your weaknesses are. And I've always found, you know, perhaps apart from woman and home, you know, in the workplace where we're sort of conditioned to only focus on what people are amazing at and their strengths, but we never sort of focus on people's weaknesses for, for lots of different reasons. But actually understanding what your weaknesses are, are is really important. I actually think it's more important than understanding what your strengths are because you can then go forward and either go, well, okay, well, I'm not good at this and therefore I'm going to choose a different path for myself. Or in my case, you go, I'm not good at this, so I'm going to work really, really hard at it so that it doesn't become an obstacle later on in my life. So that's a very long and incoherent way of... Um, telling you what I learned from it but basically she taught me about the importance of obstacles and the idea that you don't get to hack the system you can't go around an obstacle because you'll just keep moving horizontally through your life you're not going to move forward and and that's what she taught me very very quickly yeah and no that is very it is very coherent because this is what again what you talk about in your book and you talk about these obstacles and I personally am fine and I'm sure people listening to this especially ones who are sort of in the midst of next chapters or, or thinking about starting them because you, we all put obstacles up in front of us don't you and you feel like blocked and trapped so that there where you had your obstacle and so did you because you talk about going back and back sort of almost like seven times it's like if you keep being late for work why do you keep being late to work for work you know are you going to bed too late are you do you not care about your job you just keep 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 going back and did you do that so did you did you sort of think hang on look I'm not organized enough so how do I get more organized well do I use you know it's going into that tiny little detail isn't it that we need to all go into and then slowly that obstacle starts to sort of melt away yeah I don't think I mean I don't think I did do that not at 23 I didn't realize I just sort of got my act together very quickly but I think when it kept raising its head later on in my life which was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a particularly organised individual. Um, I suppose then I started looking at, well, why is that? You know, what it, what does the, you know, disorganisation, what is it, where is it coming from? Um, and I think you do have to in, interrogate that a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, I just, you know, one thing that I now do is, you know, when I wake up in the morning, 
when I make my to-do list, I do the five things that I hate doing and I do those first and I put them at the top and I get them out of the way first because otherwise, um, otherwise I won't get them done. And it, the, the day will sort of descend into chaos. So, um, yeah, I don't think I did interrogate it when I was 23, but I think later on in my life, I mean, I think there's probably still interrogation to do, you know, why do you avoid doing certain things? You know, because they probably tell you something about yourself, don't they? You know, mm, you know really do. Well, why do you why do you get up late in the morning? Well, is the reality that well maybe you're maybe you're a bit lazier than you thought? Maybe you're not this get up and go person you thought you were. And I think that's very scary for people to to um, to really confront who they might actually be as opposed to the person that they think they are. So. You know, that, that that's quite a hard thing, I think, to ask of people. What is the real reason why you have these obstacles in front of you? And, and you know, not everybody does it, but I think it's a very good lesson to sort of strip back and back and back. Like, what is the real reason for, for it? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. And so many people, you know, we know sort of are trapped by this and I include myself in it. So it is so helpful because, I mean, I mean, you, so that, look, you carried on. So you went... Forgive me if I haven't got the right order, but then you 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 went on to Good Housekeeping, uh, Glamour. You were the features editor of Marie Claire, deputy editor of Top Sante. Then you, you, I know you went to Australia at some point as well. Um, but then and then you launched Women's Health magazine, and then so that there for again talking about those obstacles and hurdles. I mean, you, I think you had a very small budget. You had a very small team. It was almost an impossible task and you had to sell a hundred thousand copies I think in the first month um and I mean so by this stage all this determination and sort of overcoming the obstacles you had a major obstacle there and you had a major but but you did it you were able to do it and you how did you do that well again we had to when we when I was given the editorship of women's health it was a bit like the woman in home situation. You know, I was what had actually happened is they had had another editor in place who had walked out and said, this is crazy. It's a mad time to be launching a magazine because it was 2012, I think, which was a particularly dark period for magazines. You know, like the digital revolution was coming. It just seemed mad that you would wait a month to read something and, and sort of pay five pounds for the privilege. So when they offered me the job and they took a risk on me because really I was, I was a real unknown. I'd never been an editor before. They, they gave me six weeks in which to do it. So I sort of, again, it was a little bit like the woman in home experience. I had to sort of blast through the obstacles because in six weeks time, we had to get a magazine out on newsstands and walking away because I'd given up my previous job. Walking away was not an option for me. You know, I had to earn money, but you know, we became, and, and I say we because there were three of us, four of us, including our intern. Um, we became in that sort of six week period, very adept, actually, at sort of smashing through obstacles. And we just started to think very creatively about things. Um, you know, I still maintain to this day, if we'd have been given lots of money and lots of time and a big room full of work colleagues to canvas opinions around, then the product wouldn't have been quite as exciting or as innovative or indeed as successful as it turned out to be. So, you know, the obstacles, and, and they were numerous, you know, it was things like we didn't have any money for proper photography. So, okay, what did we do? Well, we, we you know, we started getting creative with things like um, when we had to find photos to illustrate sex features, 
we couldn't afford any of the pictures so we just came up with ways of showing sex using i mean it sounds revolting but of using like a, a you know a banana going into a melon so we had <laughs> had to sort of think and of course what that did was the sort of desperation to to be able to afford these things sort of unlocked this creative constraint that we had had and it, and it changed the whole tone of the magazine it ended up being this very funny sort of very irreverent magazine as a consequence of that but yes it was you know obstacle after obstacle because of the money because of the time um because of the time you know this sort of ticking clock we had you know which was a, a very big obstacle for us we just had to go with our gut instinct and of course we'd never been um schooled in doing that you know usually if you're a magazine editor you canvas your idea around a big group of people you know usually very senior people and we didn't have that because we didn't have the we didn't have the staff and we didn't have the time so we had to make these decisions about what went in the magazine based on gut alone and of course a consequence of that was the ideas we came up with were very bold and very out there but it was the right thing to do for 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 building this magazine so the obstacles in a way and smashing through them were what built that magazine and, and what what made it so successful I think mm, absolutely and do you think then that helps you because then you went on to be editor of Cosmopolitan so that's almost like the the opposite where you go to a magazine that you know we all grew up with and knew so well and then you're I mean you're editor of it I mean it's huge but do you think then having done something like that before do you think that that helped you then I mean to to because it was one extreme to the other, isn't it? So then, but you go went into Cosmopolitan, I think at the time where it was going through a bit of a tricky time. So you had to take all that experience you'd had at Women's Health and you were able to do that being very creative with something that was already very, very established. And then you had to sort of reinvent it all. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, with Cosmopolitan, it was a different set of obstacles. And actually, the the... The very sad thing was there, of course, was that a lot of the staff did resign, um, whether it was in protest to me joining, because the editor before me, who was a brilliant editor and somebody I really loved, um, and she had done a good job, by the way, they just wanted to change things up. Um, I think about 80% of the of the staff resigned. Mm. So that was very crushing. That was very difficult for me. But... So I was left with this very small workforce yet again. So actually, in a way, um, and I've always been very good with very small workforces. Um, in a way, I didn't panic when sort of we didn't have, you know, a deputy editor or we didn't have a features writer. I just had this small cohort of people who, um, bless them, had decided to take a chance and stay with me. Mm. Um, but I knew from Women's Health Days that actually you could get a brilliant product out of the door with a small group of people because um all the sort of challenges that we had faced with women's health were, were the thing, of course, which made us far more creative and bold. And so with Cosmopolitan, that was one of the challenges. I suddenly had this very small workforce. But of course, I knew and I, and I you know, tried as best I could to convince those who were left that this was actually a good thing and we were going to do it and it was going to make us more creative and they were not to worry. Um, and of course, you know, very quickly, you know, Cosmo did go on to be very successful, but the obstacles, you're right, were were different because, you know, if women's health was a startup, Cosmopolitan was a sort of dinosaur which had been trading on a formula which had been working very successfully for a very long time. But sort of by 2015, which was when I came, sort of felt a little bit old-fashioned. And, and so 
that was difficult because essentially, you know, what we wanted to do was make it more palatable for a younger generation of women. The problem was Cosmo was still selling a lot. It just wasn't selling as many as it once had. And so I didn't think that actually we wanted to get rid of the older readership that we had uh, in order to bring in the younger readership. I actually sort of thought, well, there's got to be a place where the two can exist together. And that was hard figuring that out. Um, but, you know, I think it would have been, so that in, in itself was its own obstacle. So in order to find a place where those two generations of women or three or four generations of women actually could come together, we it was very difficult. That was an obstacle. We had to think differently about sex. And, you know, whereas women who grew up in the 70s, 80s and even 90s were OK with sort of reading things about 10 ways to give a blowjob. If you've got a millennial woman or, or even younger they don't see they don't sort of see the comedy in that so much and they don't see the comedy in having a naked man like a naked centerfold so that was very difficult and, and actually what we did in the end was we got rid of a lot of those sacred cows the sex positions and the naked centerfold um largely the naked centerfold because actually at that point there was a real sort of women's movement going on and, and we just didn't feel on cosmo it was right to objectify men if that's what we were asking you know if that's what we were saying we didn't want ourselves so we got rid of a lot of the sacred cows that was very difficult because there are a lot of people saying you do that you're an idiot that's what we're famous for and actually we just went back to old school long-form journalism about sex in 2015 so you know we did long-form investigations on you know women who were um I can't remember what they called themselves, but were part-time escorts, or we did things on Tinder, or we did things on, you know, the shot girls of Magaluf. Um, and and it worked, you know, that there was a place where, you know, women who were 60 and women who were 21 found the subject of sex, modern day sex, absolutely compelling. So yeah, so 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 it, so it was hard, but in a different way. But but because of that, again, we came up with this this formula that worked. Um, but again, you know, if, if Cosmo had been in a perfect place and it had been number one and I was just coming in and the reins were being handed over completely, I don't think I would have got to a place or I wouldn't have created the Cos my version of Cosmo that I did or mm. our version. So. But where did you find, Farrell, because I mean, that was such a huge thing. Where did you find the confidence when you say like 80% of the staff went? I mean, obviously it went on to be, what you did was right. And in hindsight, you know, but at the time, you know, you must have had had your wobbles. And how how did you do you cope with that? Because when you're going into such an institution like that, 80% of the staff walk out and really you're just like sort of left standing there. And it, a huge responsibility because no one wanted to see cosmopolitan go wrong um so how did you cope with that kind of pressure and how did you move through those obstacles well I have to say I was really lucky in that I had an amazing um CEO called Anna Jones who essentially and and, and it's it's sort of one of the greatest letters in lessons in leadership for me she she basically said to me this is going to be really hard you do what you've got to do and I will have you covered. Do not worry. And that was an amazing thing to have that. I mean, I've never really had that since in my career. So essentially what she was saying is I will take one for you. But you, I, I believe you know what women want. Do it. 
don't mess up hopefully mm. you know she probably said that laughing but she was like I've got you covered so if there's any problems I'll deal with it so so that was a massive lesson in sort of what really brave leadership looked like so she allowed me to take all of these risks um and I knew I had you know I knew that I had a comrade I suppose there and you know of course when people were leaving all the time I was very worried about what she was going to say but she you know she she was fine about it. She's like, well, you know, this is what happens. And I think that's one of the lovely things what I learned about um, leadership actually is, you know, is sharing experience. And so that was very helpful. And then I think that, you know, once I knew I had that, it was sort of okay. Um, Because I think what I've always been good at was, you know, if somebody gives me a, a mission, so, you know, the idea was get Cosmo back to number one in six months. So I had a goal in mind. And once I know what the goal is, and I understood, of course, from my time at Women's Health, that all goals are littered with obstacles. I mean, that that's, you know, that is the point of success. But I understood, actually, that obstacles could be quite miraculous. I sort of felt okay. I sort of felt like I was in the driving seat and nothing was going to go terribly wrong because I was protected by this amazing person, this amazing leader. But what I was about to go into was difficult. But I also knew from experience that actually in that sort of discomfort, in that sort of difficult eddy, that actually got the best out of me and it got the best out of my team. So I think that's where the confidence came from you know I wouldn't even say it was confidence I think it was just an innate understanding that what's going to get me to that place over there is working through the discomfort and I think I understand understood that implicitly because of what happened at women's health um I think I would have been far more worried had that not been the case actually Mm. um you know a lot of people use constraint to unlock creative to unlock creativity and that's what I needed and my team needed in order to be um the best that we could be so yeah I I don't think it was confidence I think it was just an understanding that this is going to be okay and this is what is needed to get us to this place over over there yeah I mean what an amazing example she was though what uh, and for you then to go on to like you were a leader but to have somebody like that because that is just the the leader you know it's taken me a long time to understand that a leader is somebody that makes you believe in yourself it's not about them themselves and you look up to them it's they give you this feeling which she did and you've obviously given to other people and can I just ask why so obviously you started off like writing and you know you're a journalist at heart how did you find that from going I know you always edited your your magazines but you know being the the one going out there doing the interview like I do now I'm a reporter for ITV and I love that you know I go out and I interview people and I, I make my reports but how did you find that going from doing that to also then managing people, which I know is so hard and budgets and all sorts of things? Did you find that? And again, did you just feel that that was all part of your na- this natural growth that we're seeing that's gone on since you were a child? It's very hard managing people, mm. uh, very difficult. And it was the most challenging thing for me. Um, I think how I became... Um, I can't say a good manager because you'd have to ask the people that worked under me. I'm sure there's lots of people who would say I wasn't a good manager and there'll be a lot of people who say, yeah, she was great. But I think because I moved, I changed, I did the the classic thing you're told not to do by your careers council at school, which was I changed jobs every few years. And of course I did that because um, I needed to earn more money. But as a consequence of changing jobs so often, what happened was I got to see so many different styles of leadership 
Whereas some people that stay in one job, that they sort of are, they only sort of see one formula. So I saw so many and was exposed to so many that actually it was sort of amazing because I had good bosses. I had what I perceived to be bad bosses. Uh, of course, now I've been a boss. I don't think any of them were bad bosses. I think they were just trying their best under incredible pressure. <laughs> but I got to a place with managing people where I sort of took the best from what I saw of other people. Um, but I still found it really hard because what I discovered was in the end that the best way to manage, because people always say, what sort of a manager are you? And it's such a difficult question to answer because it depends on the day and it depends on the person in front of you. And I always tried, I don't know if I was successful, but I always tried to manage the individual that I had in front of me and, and figure out their needs and their desires and, and, and sort of what they were made of, which is why every time I, when I joined Elle in particular and I sat down with people and I put like a coffee in with them, I think they all thought it was rather strange because I, I sort of really wasn't asking them about the job. I was asking them, you know, what did you do at university? What did you really want to study? And it was just getting a sense of the type of person that they were so that when it came to managing them, I could figure out, you know, one thing that's going to be a carrot to somebody else is going to be a stick to somebody else. And, and so that's what I tried to do. But in doing that, of course, it makes management Exa utterly exhausting mm. like utterly exhausting so um yeah I think management is all about the person in front of you believing in them of course but also figuring out you know what is it that gives them energy um and and, and that's hard you know mm. I, I think it takes a very long time to be a very good manager well, you sound like a very good manager to me far I would have loved to have a manager like that so <laughs> love it but so and then you went on to be editor of uh, of l and what what i wanted to ask you for it is because and it, this might sound a bit of a, a silly question but again just listening to i know some of my listeners um and you you know you as you started off at the beginning you described yourself as a child you know you're an intense introvert and i know sort of from reading about you i know you love your gardening you've got your lovely husband will you love your dogs you love the countryside you do you know you you are you love that solitude life and i love that and the hearing sort of someone talk about how much they know how much what they know what makes them tick I think that's sort of the secret for all of us really but then you were going into this world and you know I've seen pictures of you at like you know front row of Paris fashion week and you know to us to to me and to many people listening something like that I mean that is what you would describe we would describe as like cool like super cool look at the you know they're the people living the cool life um and you feel sort of scruffy and you feel oh my god I you know I'm never going to be like that and then you know it's it and and often in all areas of life you can feel like that be it's just picking up your children from school it's like there's the cool people over there but how I mean how did it feel how does it feel being on the front row of of, of Paris Fashion Week are the people as what, what we think of as cool as you would say they are and sort of what really is the reality of it well it's an amazing experience and I I sort of entered fashion knowing that I would never be a fashion person I was a journalist I didn't come up through the fashion route. So I felt decidedly uncool. But I think because I, I went into fashion, I think I became editor of Elle at 39 or 40. I was a grown up at that point. So actually fitting in with the cool crowd, and a lot of them are really cool. I mean, they're just naturally cool people. Do you know what I mean? Um, and and, and what, I, what, I, what I mean by that is they, they sort of genu genuinely don't care. It's not... Um, I think people think there's a lot of 
people in fashion where they've created a sort of myth around themselves and actually they're not these are the kids at school who were just you know naturally very cool and I don't see myself that way and I think if I'd have gone into fashion at sort of you know 20 25 you know 25 and under or even you know 30 and under I would have I would have exited that world very quickly but I think going in at 40 you treat it more as a sort of exploration you know I just found it a fascinating world to watch I found people in fashion were very nice now of course that could be because I was an editor and I was at the top of the tree I don't know um but the fashion world I have to say I think it's very easy and heaven knows I did it early on in my career to denigrate the fashion world and to think it's light and fluffy and they're not particularly nice people and and of course I actually think that comes from a place of envy they are very nice very warm very generous people very smart people um and you have to be smart if you're working in fashion because you know it's the only world I know which changes every bloody season so you've got to think of something new to say and you if you're a brilliant fashion writer you have to make clothes be really a conversation about what's going on in the world so it's about ideas so it's a fascinating world yes they're all very cool yes I felt you know I felt a little bit out of place you know I was about three dress sizes bigger than everybody else um I didn't like going to the after parties you know I went to the shows and then I went home I didn't like going to the dinners um it wasn't sort of you know my world but it was a wonderful world to be part of for 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 a period of time um and you know people when they talk about Anna Wintour being you know xyz you know I think Anna Wintour is genuinely like that you know I mean I've only met her a couple of times but she's quite a cold aloof person and and I don't think that is by design I think that's just naturally some people are um I think I'm just sort of too um I'm too outgoing well I say outgoing I'm too effervescent when I get talking to be cool I think to be cool you have to be a little bit aloof and it's sort of not really my it's not really my hymn sheet really aloof I think you're cool I think you're really, I mean, you'd, you'd be somebody I think is definitely cool. But it, isn't it? And when we say cool, I wonder if like, you know, what do we mean by cool? I suppose that's really interesting. You say that it's, I suppose what it is, it's people who have got the confidence, which obviously you do, to be yourself. And again, this goes back, isn't it? It's going back to like what you say, the obstacles. Whereas when you start sort of trying to be like somebody else, you're trying to be like that to fit in, you try, you lose sense of yourself and then you feel intimidated and then you, you know, then it all goes wrong. But if you can just get to a stage like you did when you took over L, that you were, you were sort of, you you built, you know, you'd built up enough experience. You, you, you had your, your instincts there that you could, you could just basically be yourself and that, that's when it starts to work isn't it yeah I think so and I think I think there's a couple of things about just being yourself it's utterly charming if somebody is completely themselves the chicest thing I ever saw in my life was a woman walking into Dalesford Organic in bed socks and a dirty top and she looked so out of sorts and she literally did not care she literally did not care with all these pristine people in their pristine Hunter Wellingtons. And she was just the coolest thing, the chicest thing I'd ever seen because of that. So, yeah, I think just being yourself, it's very disarming. It's very charming. Um, I think it comes with age as well. I really do. You know, it's like what I said, you know, I think had I gone into fashion at a different age, it would have been quite difficult for me. But, you know, I think... I mean, of course, there are people in their 40s, 50s. I mean, in their, you know, people in their 90s who never sort of, you know, 
allow themselves to be themselves but it's it's an amazing thing because what happens of course when you are yourself is yeah you know you sort of weed out the people who are not attracted to you but you also attract your people and I, I think that's sort of another lesson in itself isn't it which is you don't get to be liked by everyone all the time you know you shouldn't get to have it all why would anybody want to have it all you you get to sort of make these choices in life and live by them and, and by being yourself what you do very quickly is you know your circle sort of naturally segregates itself so um yeah but but it's hard to do and I, th- I think age plays a big element in being yourself mm. um, th- there's a very slight tangent here for, but I just because it's just one of uh, I write um away from journalism I write romance books and romance and I your story of how you met your husband I think or how you got together with your husband is one of my favorite romance stories but this, this is a tangent this is a very <laughs> slight tangent but just but it goes into what we're saying about being yourself and when you were talking about um you know, not enjoying parties earlier. And again, that, you know, that's, that's all part of it, isn't it? Sometimes you don't enjoy every aspect of, of all these things. And you were at a party, you'd met him before um, and it hadn't got, you introduced by your sister and it hadn't gone so so well. But years later, you saw him at a party and you were really unhappy at this party. And he was, and you were honest enough to say, I just don't like being at this party. And and he was the same. And then that's exactly like there, what you're saying, that you, you're, you're together with the right person because you're being completely honest about who you are. That's right. And, it, you know, I think actually what I said was far less nice than that. I think I was sat there and said, I hate everybody in this place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, he went, yeah, I do too. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, you're absolutely right. There was, I mean, he still talks about it. He says, you know, that's when I knew this is a good person for me. And, you know, we've been together, what, 20 odd years. He's my best friend. I mean, he literally, people say that it's a cliche. He literally was my best friend before we became romantically involved mm. um but but you're right you know but by being completely i mean it is a cliche the word now authentic but by being yourself yeah you know i attracted my husband you know um he sends something in the ether about me underneath it all being a real curmudgeon and he was like that's the woman i want in my life yeah well it was a bit i mean the part that i one day you know i might have to steal somehow for it to put in one of my books but it was the fact that you were friends then for years and then he went or he was at glastonbury and you were still friends and you know and then you thought he was going to get together with somebody else and then he came back on the train late at night on the saturday of glastonbury i mean that's 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 i couldn't make it up far i couldn't make it up yeah, I mean, I think he did get together with the other person, but but uh, but I I think um, and and because we had been such good friends at that point, when he rang me, he actually rang me from Glastonbury. Uh, Glastonbury was not my thing, and it was the Saturday night, so it was the big night, and he just said, um, "There's all these really funny things here, but nobody finds them funny like you find them funny." Mm-hmm. I think I'd asked him how it was going, and then he said, "Oh, but by the way, you know, there is this girl that I've met," and. I just felt very, um, I can't even describe what the feeling was, but I knew that I didn't want him anywhere near this woman. And I knew actually that if he fell in love with somebody else, that to be fair to this this girl, our, our friendship would probably be over. And I didn't want him to not be a part of my life. So very selfishly, I said, look, why don't you just jack in Dastonbury and then come back to London? And to my amazement he went yeah okay and and, and yeah he got on the train and he, and he came back and he knocked on the door of my little flat and 
yeah, we just fell into a kiss. And, and, oh. and it was, I mean, look, it was complicated after that because it is weird. It sounds very romantic and it was very romantic. But of course, we sort of had to work backwards because it's like, oh, this is my best, you know, so, mm. so it, was, it was complicated in the beginning. Mm. But yes, and, and for years I was like, well, it wasn't very romantic how we got together, was it? Because we didn't see each other across a room and want to rip one of those clothes off and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, well, actually, I think it's probably one of the most romantic stories there is. And I actually think he's right because I think because we were able to be ourselves in front of each other, I think what was happening was behind the scenes, you know, our brains were going, this is a very good life partner for you. This is, a, this is the, you know, this is the sort of person you should be with. So um, the friendship was grooming us basically for, for marriage. Oh, but I think yeah. if I'd have pretended to be anyone else, we maybe we wouldn't have got together. Maybe Will wouldn't have thought I was, you know, the sort of woman for him and, and vice versa. Yeah, well, that, exactly. And that's, you know, that's the same in friendships, working relationships, all sorts. I think, though, Farah, if I put it in my book, if you don't mind, it'll have to be raining on the, you know, I think it has to be raining that moment where he arrives at your flat. <laughs> no sadly not I think it was a very hot June evening sadly might have to change that but anyway anyway we do digress so moving back on I'm so conscious of your time so so now so there you were I mean you're editor of Elle you have won numerous awards you're you know editor of the year award I mean we're talking really absolutely top of the game and then obviously anyone listening to this now will know what's going to come next is then you did something completely different again so you now so so you you left it all basically you left it all behind you but then doing something completely different so you work um now with Substack and you're the um editor of Substack Reads and you're head of writer partnerships but you also have your own which is I love it um things worth knowing so you've got all your own writing again and also now within interviews with other people so can you explain a why did you do this and sort of how it all came about and, and what you're doing Yes. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I, I think the truth is, you know, my time in magazines was coming to an end. I'd sort of done everything that I could do. I was at sort of, you know, it didn't get really any better than editing L. And also, if I'm completely honest, the industry um, is very difficult now. And, and I worry about the industry. And, you know, I was 42 and I was looking out on the sort of horizon going, well, you know, are magazines going to be around in sort of 10 years time? I'm not entirely sure, certainly not in the way that I had worked on magazines. Um, so I was sort of, so, so there was always that, you know, and I have to be very honest about that. There was always a worry about what is the future of this industry that I adore. Um, and when I say I adore magazines, I loved the writers. Those were really like my people. Those were the people I liked, you know, the the, the difficult people. Um, the misunderstood people, they're the ones I like and I find interesting. Um, but at the same time, I had reached reached the top and, and you know, it sort of it sort of stopped being exciting. And, and so I remember saying to my husband, like, you know, what am I going to do? Um, you know, I thought about, well, maybe I'll go and be a, a garden designer because I love gardening. But then, of course, I realised that's a hobby. It doesn't mean you need to go and do it as a job. And actually, if I did it as a job, I'd probably hate gardening. Um and so I just started thinking about, well, well, what what was the thing that sort of got me up in the morning? What did I love? And of course, what I loved was I loved writers. And so Substack is it's an American company. It's a, it's a tech company. But but really, it's a company built by writers. You know, it's like the world's biggest paid for newsletter platform. Um, 
and it allows writers to basically get paid for their work directly from their audience and the reason I say that is that actually was really important to me because it goes back to our conversation at the very beginning the difficult thing about being a writer and the reason why there are not many writers who stick it out on magazines they just cannot afford to you know word rates it's the only sort of profession I know where the salaries are going backwards and the word rates are going backwards. And so you end up with some of the best writers in the world going, I can't hack this anymore. I can't pay my mortgage. Um, and so, and also there's not many writing jobs anymore. So what appealed to me about Substack was, was that actually people could start a newsletter and it's not just newsletters, you know, you can do a podcast or you can do video, but they get paid by their audience um, and that's a very honest transaction, you know, obviously with, on magazines, you know, writers are paid a salary um, and people often buy, you know, I'm, I'm not a fool. People often bought Cosmo for the writers, not for Cosmo, the brand. We were led to believe it's because it's Cosmo, it's the brand. But often the writers were the people that brought in a lot of the audience. Mm -hmm. And so what appealed about, about Substack was this idea that actually writers could make a living um, from the audience that love their work. And so, yeah, and so I um, I sort of left, you know, I resigned from L um, and, and I joined Substack. I'm actually head of writer part. So, so I basically sort of head of the UK side of the business, which is their second biggest market. And and the job is, is you know, I'm definitely out of my depth some days because, you know, the, the company is mainly engineers, mainly people who are a lot younger than me, who've come from very different backgrounds, tech people. Um, but it's really interesting and my days are spent with writers and my days are spent, are spent helping writers make money and strategizing with them about you know might this work so there's an element of editing a little bit of editing helping people um, so yeah so it, it is a big departure it, it's completely new but at the same time it's sort of not it's sort of what I've been doing forever which is you know helping people be more creative um it's just an i'm just operating in a different world now you know i don't have a big glass corner office anymore i work from home um i don't manage people you know I, i'm the only person in the uk at the moment so those bits of the job have gone you know but but actually the bit of the job that i always enjoyed being an editor which was working with writers that's i'm doing that more so than ever and actually i would say this job and i would never have believed this you know somebody said to me recently do you miss the handbags and do you miss the front row and i don't miss it one bit because i identified the bit of the job that i loved and the bit that i loved was working one-on-one -on -one. like i said i'm not great with big teams even though i had to do it i'm best when i'm working one-on-one -on -one with, with with writers which of course that's part of the editing process uh and that's pretty much what what the job is now so yeah it, it, it's um it's very different, but but at the same time, it's not so different at all, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And it also, again, it takes me back from when you were talking, it reminds me when you were talking at the beginning about that race, you know, and when somebody's coming up from behind. And in a sense, it sounds a bit like that's how you felt within the magazine industry, that sort of, like you say, the industry was changing and it was sort of not necessarily sustainable in the same way it was. So now you've gone into something else, but also it ties in with what you're saying about how if you're true to yourself and like you were saying earlier, 
portfolio is hard managing people. And obviously, you love the journalism, you love working directly with people, making people as good as they can be. So here you are now, you're into something really exciting and new, which if you just stayed, you know, you'd been in that race being pulled backwards, wouldn't you? So this is, I think it sounds amazing. Yeah, and and I think, you know, the other good thing you very kindly mentioned, the other wonderful thing is I have my own substack. And so I can write whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is very different to traditional media where you have an editor. The editor, of course, was me. And and these writers come to you with an idea and you go, yeah, it's quite good, but actually we would prefer you to write this. So you also have a lot of writers in traditional media who are trapped writing about things they don't feel, you know, they can write very strongly and compellingly about. Um, So, yeah, you know, I write whatever I want on my Substack. And, you know, again, it goes back to being your, just being yourself. I write about what I want to write about. So that means a lot of people won't read me because they'll go, oh, well, this is the woman from Cosmo and she's not writing about sex. Well, sometimes I write about sex. But but you attract the, you know, you attract sort of like-minded people. Um, So, yeah, it's been sort of an amazing year of of change and experimentation and curiosity for me, but definitely like the best year of of my career, I would say. Oh, that's amazing. And do you find, because this is something that, you know, I so I've worked for ITV for 16 years. It's like my husband, you know, he's been there for 20 years. And so many of us, we get so used to, you know, you work for a big company and you have a salary and then it becomes very hard. And I'm seeing this, you know, branching out myself you know with with my books my podcast the idea of charging people direct that that whole money thing and this I think comes up a lot with lots of people I speak to and it doesn't matter whether it's writing whether it's you're making jewelry whether you're uh, you know going to offer to redesign someone's home but you know knowing your value and asking people directly for money that's quite hard isn't it but at the same time it's liberating so if this is an obstacle something I need to get through but if you can get over that then again that's just totally liberating because you find the people who really want to read your writing and who will pay for it not everybody is going to pay for my writing but the sort of super fans they will pay for it I mean I think I don't know if it's a British thing it's certainly a writer thing I think it's a creative thing, should I say, actually, not just a writer's thing. We're very bad at asking for money. And that's, a, that's, that's very bad culturally, that creative people feel they can't ask for money. Because actually, of course, creative people have something that, you know, AI and robots will never replace. You know, they're, they're sort of magicians. They come up with these stories and ideas and jewellery and art. And yet they feel bad about asking for money. Mm. Um, and, and I've always found that very sad. Uh, I've never felt bad about asking for money. I think if somebody cleans your windows, you pay them. If somebody writes a, a brilliant you know, book or a brilliant piece of writing, you should pay them for the time and the thoughts and the creativity that they, they, they've, they've put into that. So, yeah, but, but, it, but it's very difficult. And, and it's one of the things that in my job now I see time and time again is writers going, oh, well, who'll pay for me? Or, oh, I can't ask for money. And of course, by the way, it's particularly bad for writers because the internet has meant that writing actually is seen as disposable and, and, and you know, everything is free. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not free. You pay the price with advertising, but um, Substack doesn't have advertising. Um, but, but I think it's taking a while for audiences to realise that all this free content out there it's not actually free, is it? No. It's like you have to be assaulted with, you know, adverts for pedal bins and compost bins, if you're me. And and actually, you know, 
the more you get assaulted with these things, I think more and more people now are starting to realise that actually that's a pretty high price to pay to basically have my eyeballs, you know, um, molested by this constant advertising. And so I think or I hope what will happen is the general public are starting to realise there is a cost to everything. And these podcasts are not free. You've got to listen to these jingles. You know, this piece of digital is not free. You've got to, you know, watch these adverts. Um, And so people hopefully will go, actually, if I just want to have a direct communication and just read um, or listen to this brilliant podcast, then I'm going to have to pay for it. Mm. And I don't know, I think that's a very, I think that's a very good message because basically what it says to creatives is we value you. And of course it goes back to the very beginning, Ellie, which is, you know, if creatives were making money and people valued what they do, then you wouldn't have parents thinking you have to be doctors and lawyers Mm. because they want that because they think it's a secure future. They're terrified of you becoming a creative because of the instability. Um, So I think there's sort of, um, yeah, I think there's a sort of greater, Good. God, that sounds very Silicon Valley. But I think no, there, I genuinely think there is a greater good, of, uh, you know, coming of this. I really hope so. Yeah. I listen. I, I mean, this is a whole. I, I mean, it's just say. I I I work in the industry. My husband does, and this in in terms of television because I know you can sort of put video content on it. Um, but also it's the writing. It's all of that. And this is. I mean, this is game changing. I think. It, personally, my husband and I both think it, you know, it, it is a game changer and it's a way of people as well having exactly what they want and, and you know, being able to, you don't have to necessarily go through, flick through all the, like you say, listen to all the adverts or list, read all the other, you know, you can have exactly what you want. And if you're, especially if you're learning from it or you, it brings you up or it lifts you up, this is you can get you can really have that authentic life that we you know that we that we're talking about so i could go on about this for hours and i won't because you you you've got to you've got to run substack for you you're you're busy you've got articles to write but um but um so to be continued you're to be continued i'm guessing you're going to just this is the, just the beginning and you can do more and more of this yeah i think so i mean i'm i'm what i'm i'm one year into this sort of new journey so where i'll be in 4 years time i don't know um, I'd like to still be at Substack. Um, I said to my husband, you know, I, I, this is the first time I, I sort of think I could be here forever. Wow. And I think that's because it's a startup. Mm. And so actually it's constantly changing. And so that's constantly keeping. So I'm, I feel like I'm constantly growing and I've never had that before. And I think that's because I've always been in legacy media where this is what the, this is what the business is. You've got to grow to match the business. I think yeah. the difference with Substack, of course, is, the business is constantly evolving and constantly growing. And so every day, you know, I, I get in and there'll be something new on the platform that I've got to get my head around. Um, and that's a really good sign of, of, of sort of a, for me anyway, um, of a good job for me. It sort of fits the type of person that I am. So, yeah, you know, ask me in four years' time, but I'd, I'd like to still be here. Yeah, I bet I'll, I'll ask you back. I'll, I'll <laughs> ask you back for her. I'll, I'll, I'm going to check on you. Yeah, I get that as well. That whole, you've always got that, like, it's almost like a little whisper in the side saying, oh, this industry is, oh, it's, you know, everything's changing. Bless you, you know, everything's changing all the time. Whereas to be involved in something, whereas this is just the beginning and who knows where we're going to go, that is a, is a, is a wonderful place to be it, it really is um so your acknowledgements for i mean my goodness who would you like to thank who are the people who have helped you along the way well i think all of those managers that 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 you know who were who were trying to lead 
um I, I think you know i have to be grateful to all of them i mean there is one in particular when i was at women's health there was a manager that i had this is not the ceo this is actually was he was the editor of men's health and he was um basically sort of taught me the ropes of how to edit and i'll never forget and he won't think that this is um he won't he he, he will probably not understand why i've always kept this very close to my heart but i remember he said to me I think there was like a big Christmas party or there were big there were the, the drinks or something going on at the pub down the road. And he said, look, he said, part of being an editor is understanding boundaries and understanding that at some point you have to keep moving forward. You've, you've got to leave certain stuff behind. Um, well, this is how I interpreted it. That's not actually what he said. What he said was, Farah, don't go to the pub with them. Go there, give them some money, buy drinks for them all and then leave. And actually what he said to me was, because what you have to understand is your team need to bond. And some of that bonding will be talking about you and you have to be strong enough and secure enough to deal with that because that's what will go on. You have to be OK with that. And I, I never forgot it. Um, I also sort of looked like the advice that meant I didn't have to go to the pub with them. But I think essentially what he was saying, wasn't it? It was about boundaries and it was about letting go of things. And it was about, you know, it goes back to the earlier conversation. It's about being okay with who you are. And not everybody's going to like that. And sometimes your team are not going to like that. But actually, you've got to be okay with that. If you're going to be a leader, that's a very important lesson to learn. And, and so I always took that to heart. If anybody, you know, if the team asked me out for drinks, I'd go, I'd literally just go and stay about five or 10 minutes because the reality is even as, as much as they said they'd like you to be there, they don't really want the boss there. I mean, that is the truth. Um, and they also don't want the boss to see certain behaviours. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen him since, but I, I thought it was an absolutely instrumental piece of advice. And mm. I think it was probably had far more depth than he he thought it would have. But but it made, it made a big impression on me. Yeah, I can imagine. And again, it's amazing how it all goes back to that same thing, sort of feeling comfortable in yourself. So very finally, so if someone's listening to this, um, Farah, so they're, they're thinking, OK, I feel really stuck. You talk about an obstacle. And at the moment, their obstacle is I sort of... I just don't, I know I don't like what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm really miserable, uh, but I feel completely trapped. I'm sort of, you know, I'm in my 40s, I'm in my 50s. I feel completely trapped or, or maybe not that, that age. I just feel completely trapped with what I'm doing. I've got rent, I've got mortgage, everything. But this is not right for me. What would you say to that person who doesn't know what they want to do, but knows that they need to move on in the way that you have all the time? How, what would you say, you know, the obstacle is and their first st step is to getting through that obstacle? Well, I think you can't keep it vague. I think you have to be very specific about you what you want. So a lot of people go, well, I know I'm not happy, but I think I'd be happier if I worked in something creative. Well, that's too vague and you're never going to hit it if, you, if you're vague like that. You're just never going to. So I think you have to be very specific about what you want, even if you're not sure. So let's just say somebody goes, you know, I know I want, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trapped in the law and I now want to have a more creative outlet. Well, choose something. doesn't matter what it is. Just go, okay, I think it might be, let's say, writing. I think it might be writing. But the point is you need to have a very specific goal. 
And because when you've got a very specific goal, you're not saying, you know, you want to dedicate the rest of your life to writing, but you're saying you want to have a creative outlet. Once you've got the very specific goal, um, let's say it's writing, you can then be very specific about the time frame that it's going to take. So you might go, okay, in a year's time, I want to have written, I want to, let's say, I want to have started a substack. Okay. Well, and so then bit by bit, the more specific you get, the more you can A, start building up a, a vivid picture of what sort of a new life might look like. And that's very important because that's what keeps you going. And that's why when you're vague about things, it's very bad because it doesn't get you through the tough stuff. Because if you're vague, if you leave it all open to, oh, something creative, when things get hard, you need to be able to have that sort of vivid, bright light at the end of the tunnel, which is like, that's what I want to get to. So, yeah, I think they need to sort of take a shot at what they think it might be. And, and look, there's no wrong answers. Um, you can always take a sideways move, but I think to get you out of a rut, be specific, think about somewhere you want to be in a year's time, two years time, three years time. Don't start thinking in like 10, 20 years because it gets too vague and too difficult again. And then I think what you have to understand is, okay, in a year's time, if I want to be some sort of writer, what I've got to understand is, is that the road to get me there is going to be littered perhaps with obstacles, but actually that's the thing that's going to make me a better writer and I have to move through those obstacles rather than try and skirt around them and that's why it goes back to what I'm saying about you need to be very specific and have a, a very clear picture even if it's a you know it's not the perfect thing um because you know there's no such thing as a perfect goal actually um you need to be very specific about it because that's what's going to get you through the obstacles um so again that's a very inarticulate way of of, of sort of giving you know, someone, a you know, back of the napkin sketch of what they need to do to get out. of. But, you know, what I would say to people is don't be drastic because there really is a difference between putting yourself into your discomfort zone and throwing yourself into your panic zone. And when you're panicked, if you go, right, I'm going to I'm going to abandon my job as a lawyer and I'm going to, you know, start applying for magazine jobs. Well, you're going to get very heavily burnt because you're not prepared for it. So I, I think people do have to understand it goes back to being realistic about what it takes uh, and it goes back to sort of setting yourself small ambitions to get you to this sort of bigger end result mm, no yeah it, yeah it makes perfect sense and just this is my i promise you it's my final question i promise you so somebody now listening to this and i've got i've got a close friend in mind i know she's she's just stepping over the line you know she's saying she wants to work in interiors and she's she's doing it and again doing it on your own which is often you know again it's it's very frightening but how do you cope with that so that's interiors is you know it's not dissimilar at all to fashion and there's lots of we go back to saying cool people and people lots of people have got opinions about it and it's a, it's so daunting what would you say to that person that like to keep that belief that what they have to offer is people do want to hear about well i think that that's where you get it from your community isn't it you know whoever she's she, she has to and this is where people have to uh, again i think it's a slightly british thing you have to be um good at accepting praise you know I think when you're starting out in something it's not a time to be self-deprecating actually I think if let's take your friend if she's working with one client she needs to take every bit of praise that she can get and she needs to believe in it um so I think that's very important we're always told oh you know be self-deprecating and, and to a certain degree I do believe in that but I think when you're starting out you have whatever scrap of praise you get 
you really need to let that nourish you. It's a really important thing. Um, and, you know, again, it, it goes back to being yourself. You know, if the world is full of interior, cool interior designers or cool fashion people, well, you know, there is a place for you. And, and you know, you sort of have to choose what your lane is and sort of block out what everybody else is doing i think it's very easy to get distracted by what other people are doing around you and that's why again it goes back to having this very specific idea of what does it look like for you because it's your idea of success is going to be completely different to the cool person you're sat next to on the front row row and therefore um you sort of stop competing with them. And, and I think that's the important thing. You know, this sort of constant comparison with where somebody else is at or what somebody else is doing, you could only sort of deal with the path that you have set yourself. Um, and that's why, you know, I was saying earlier, don't be vague about what it is. It's not, I want to work in fashion. Maybe it's, I want to be a fashion designer who specializes in, I don't know, vintage clothing. It's very specific, which means you suddenly can't compete with other people. And I think that's a very good thing, actually. Farah Storm, you are absolutely winning your race. It, it has been, a, I could talk to you and keep talking to you. I love talking about the discomfort zone. Thank you for being such an amazing and fabulous guest on the next chapter. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So there you are. Oh, what did you think of that? I loved, loved that conversation. I learned so much. She's brilliant, isn't she? So much to take, but I just love that. It's an amazing thing to be yourself because then you can attract the people who are your people. I mean, it's so simple, but so true. Now, you can find out all about Farah and her Things Worth Knowing column at Substack and her book, The Discomfort Zone. Well, I can't recommend it enough. It's helped me so much and I really hope it will help you too. And if you'd like to keep in touch with me, well, I'd love that. You can join me at elliebarkerwrites.com and I'll send you some notes about next chapters, my books, and also just to see how you are. It'd be lovely to keep in touch. So if you could sign up to my mailing list, well, that would be wonderful. I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, just keep being you. You're amazing. I think so. And Farah does too. Speak soon.